Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is part two of three episodes focused on the revelations in what has come to be known as the Facebook Papers, reports based on a trove of documents brought forward by whistleblower Francis Haugen. In the first part, we heard from the executive editor of The Atlantic, Adrian LaFrance, who wrote about the challenge Facebook poses to democracy. In this episode, I had a chance to catch up with two people. First, Jeff Horwitz, a technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal and one of the leaders of the team reporting on the documents that were first brought forward by the journal. And I spoke to Dia Kiali, the Associate Director for Advocacy at Mnemonic, the umbrella organization for Syrian Archive, Yemeni Archive, and Sudanese Archive, for reactions to the revelations in the whistleblower documents and a point of view on what it means for the Oversight Board, the entity Facebook set up to provide external oversight to its content moderation decisions and to help it make policy. First, let's hear from Jeff Horwitz. Jeff covers Facebook's business and its impact on the world, and his reporting has won many awards, including a Gerald Loeb Awards finalist citation for articles he produced with two colleagues about Facebook's struggle to police hate in India. Before he joined the Wall Street Journal, he was a financial and enterprise reporter for the Associated Press in Washington, D.C. Here's Jeff. Jeff Horwitz, technology reporter, Wall Street Journal. So, Jeff Horwitz, you are the OG, the original uh, reporting on the Facebook leaks before all the cool kids were doing it. Uh, but now, now everyone has jumped into the fray. I'm sure that feels a little weird. I just want to maybe just ask you this Thursday morning, October 28th, maybe step back from all of this. You know, you're seeing this incredible swirl of Wall Street Journal uh, led the way into cracking open these papers, uh, you know, gigabytes of information. I don't know. Where's your head right now? What do you feel about what's going on in the world? It's difficult in that I think there's a really a big desire to sort of have something, what comes next, what comes next. And I think I've been pretty big into the idea that maybe everyone should just read some stories and quietly think about it for a few weeks. I'm, I'm not talking about like establish a blue ribbon commission and, you know, think about social media for two years, but it just seems like things have been moving awfully fast. Yeah, I think it's really good that the papers are getting attention. These are things that when we first saw them, just thought to ourselves, this is, you know, this is really meaningful, right? And I, I had a chance to, to talk to Francis Haugen, um, you know, over the course of this period, including during the time of the collection. And it's, I think it's revelatory stuff. I just think, um, you know, maybe there's, there's a, an urge to move a little fast right now. So there's a, a bit of a tension because, you know, on some level, you've got activists, people in civil society, and even some journalists and others who are saying, you know, um, these harms that have been revealed in these leaks are things that we've been warning the world about, telling the world about for, for some years now. And yet now there's this kind of confirmation from inside the company. Is that part of that? Is that part of the effort to kind of push things to move faster? I'm going to say generally, yes. The things that we first reported, many of them are things that have been alleged before and they've been alleged credibly by people in civil society and in journalism. The thing that I think is different here is, uh, first of all, the quantification of them. 
Um, and second of all, the proof that Facebook fully understands them um, and that Facebook's understanding is very different from what has been publicly conveyed, right? So like, it's not that we didn't know that Facebook's moderation overseas sucked compared to the moderation in the US, which also kind of sucked, right? We knew those things. It's just, we didn't know exactly how bad and, you know, the company always said it was going to do better. It was trying to do better. And I think one of the things that these papers, um, these, these files um, made clear is that the company isn't trying to do better in a significant fashion on a lot of these things. This is just kind of, this is the status quo and they're cool with that. So I want to get into that in just a second. I want to kind of go into the company's response and, you know, how, how you kind of compute that. I do want to kind of just tap into something that I feel like you're, uh, I guess, not not struggling with, but engaging with some somewhat, which is just the scale of all this. You know, uh, Facebook now almost 3.6 billion users around the world. The company likes to vaunt; it has a thousand researchers, most of them with PhDs. But you know, when you when you look at this amount of information and the complexity of what's going on here, all of these networked, you know, minds and bodies could 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 PhDs get their head around this? I mean, they could certainly get their hand around or their head around a lot more, but the, I, I think that the, the size and the complexity are kind of different things, right? The size arguably scales. It's a linear job. The complexity per every Facebook employee working on these things uh, is an exponential problem. And I think Facebook is a platform. People have talked about sort of it being relatively bloated in terms of feature sets and so forth. This is a platform that wants to be everything to everyone. And I think a lot of the bells and whistles and various recommendation systems were added on with like zero thought about what the integrity related maintenance costs were going to be for those new features, right? They just build something and then, you know, they'd leave it alone until it caught fire. This isn't like a searing indictment of the company. This is completely understandable that this is how they would have done things. They, you know, nobody understood this back when they were first putting this stuff together and back when the approach to the product was getting set. But at this point, per the folks I've been talking to, it's just a big liability that just seems to remain unaddressed. I guess the other question is, isn't there a, just, just a profound ethical conundrum here? You've got uh, a company that knows about these harms. It knows it's hurting people, but chooses to, to continue to do so for profit. And it seems like the pattern here is that the, you know, the buck stops with Mark Zuckerberg most often. That, it, um, it does. Um, and I, I think, look, I think the, the profound ethical conundrum um, you're talking about, that's not one that Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook recognizes, I think. I think they recognize this as collateral damage, but they are very, very confident that the product in its current form is overwhelmingly good for the world. How that math gets calculated is, short answer is it doesn't, but I think it's something that the company is very convinced about. And I think that is actually part of their response is premised on the fact that they are very sure, just very, very sure that we are all off base and even that their own integrity researchers who have pointed to areas in which the platform's impacts might be more harmful than beneficial uh, as being off base too. We saw that in Mark Zuckerberg's 
statements during the Q3 earnings report this week. Um, and, and I'll quote from him just a little bit. He says, you know, what we're seeing is a coordinated effort to selectively use leaked documents to paint a false picture of our company. And then he goes on to, to kind of do exactly what you say, which is to, you know, lay out all the reasons why, you know, the company is on top of this stuff. He says, quote, I'm proud of our record navigating the complex trade-offs involved in operating services at global scale. And I'm proud of the research and transparency we bring to our work. Our programs are industry leading. We have made massive investments in safety and security with more than 40,000 people. And we are on track to spend more than $5 billion on safety and security in 2021. I believe that's more than any other tech company, even adjusted for scale. It's hard for me like to go through, listen to all of that and like not just like have rebuttal points. Um, there are memos from like late last year, early this year, I can't recall, in which they're talking about uh, the goal being to get quote unquote one plus person who speaks the language, I'm sorry, who speaks the main language of every country in which Facebook operates on, it operates in, and they don't have that yet, right? In other words, there are countries in which Facebook does not have a single person on staff anywhere who speaks the language. In terms of the, you know, being proud of maintaining, you know, the complex trade-offs or whatever with, um, you know, global stuff, literally most of the languages in which Facebook serves, they do not have any AI at all, right? Things that, that in the U.S. they would like literally never make it through the, you know, make it through the hour without doing, they just simply haven't built in the least. And so there's like it's not that these guys are evil. They, they build the things when they can, but when they can comes after everything else gets taken care of. Is there something about this uh, that, I don't know, almost as personal for Mark Zuckerberg. Do you assess that? And I, I on some level kind of feel like he can't accept this because to some, because he, as the, the father of this thing, he regards it as a part of him that he can't accept this criticism about it. How could it not be, right? I mean, I've like actually thought about this a little bit over the, the past six months or so when I've been kind of working in this general area. Um, it's the hardest I've ever worked in my life. And I actually imagine that Mark Zuckerberg works harder than that every day. And I also imagine that everyone in Mark Zuckerberg's world, he has more people dependent on him for their financial success, et cetera, than, than you know, anyone I've ever met. In some ways, it's like one of the more beholden positions I can imagine is being in charge of something this important that is this central to your life, right? I try not to get too far into Mark's head. It feels a little bit disrespectful and he's a very smart and talented guy, but it certainly seems very reasonable to think that this would be very hard to come to grips with. I mean, like candidly, if you told me that some of my articles had resulted in things that were, you know, really made the world a worse place. It would be kind of hard for me to take. Um, and, you know, maybe it's true. I've been asking people this week about this issue of governance and about Mark Zuckerberg's role in the company. He is in a peculiar role, even from, you know, uh, you know, just a general kind of corporate governance perspective. And with this pattern, with this kind of pattern of seeing, you know, him as, as a sort of rejector in chief of, ideas put forward that might make the platform um, a healthier place. Does that create an insurmountable dilemma for Facebook employees? If, if their good intentions are, are ignored or only accepted in part, what does that mean for them? Yeah. So push back slightly on the it's all Mark thing, because at this point, there is a group of people around Mark that 
seem like they are kind of the mark interpreters. And in some instances, you know, I, I think I've heard from a lot of people who, who are just frustrated that ideas couldn't even make it to him, you know, and that there were basically people around him that were sort of protecting him from perhaps negative appraisals of what Facebook was actually doing in the world. Right. And I think it's one of the things that's just like really incredible about some of this stuff is that like, for example, like teen mental health, the, you know, the idea was like, well, not all of it was bad. You know, there was some good findings in there and it's like, guys, this is the company's own research. Like, do you realize what guts it took for people to write down in a presentation to executives that the product had a major problem? Clearly, we have seen that there are a lot of, of Facebook executives that and employees who have regarded this as a moment of reckoning and you know are seeking to leave the company or leaving the company. There's been reporting on you know Facebook's troubles in recruiting. Those are actually not related to to this stuff, though. It's like they're just like literally running into the glut of like they, they've they did really well during the pandemic. They were able to hire a ton of people during the pandemic because early on, because everyone else was like afraid to hire and Facebook was like, give me more, more employees. Um, but I, so I don't, you know, I think it's entirely possible that there could be recruitment issues that come out of this, but I'm not, I'm not clear. That's the case. I think, um, you know, look like one of the things that's been kind of amazing to me internally is that there are the folks who like have been reading this stuff internally and appraising it and maybe getting in touch and, you know, chatting respectfully on Twitter about it. And then there's been a lot of folks who just like the response is it's not true. And it kind of makes me pull my hair out a little bit on the internal side, because like literally these documents are still up there, or if they're not still up there, that should tell you something, right? If you're an employee and the documents that are apparently all cherry picked suddenly just disappeared when we wrote about them, like row, row. Even when you describe that there are people under Mark Zuckerberg who are deflecting or potentially exacerbating the problem of even his access to information about harms in the platform, that that in and of itself is also a governance problem that has something to do with the, you know, it, it, I don't know, it sounds like the way that people coddle an authoritarian or, um, you know, a monarch. I mean, uh, look, it's a, it is a remarkable structure for a company. Um, and the guy has made a lot of extremely good calls in terms of how to run Facebook as a business. And, you know, and uh, there's been a lot of things that were very far-sighted. I think there is, it is astounding to me. Very few people leave the company and say the problem is something other than Mark, like in terms of the people who are willing to talk about it, like in terms of the, the failure to take the societal concerns seriously enough or, or handle that stuff responsibly like that. You know, some people take issue with Joel Kaplan. Some people don't, you know, some people um, put things on the growth team. Some people don't, but like everyone seems to, who, who has a concern with this stuff seems to basically be like, look, this is a, you know, this is a, what is it? A Mark Zuckerberg production. Wasn't that the original wording? Um, yeah. I want to switch a little bit to the, some of the solutions you've seen in the documents that have been put forward. Is there a, a kind of short list in your head um, of things that you've seen proposed internally or things that you've seen proposed in response to these leaks that you feel like are things that the world should pursue? Before sort of coming up with the things I've seen and the things in the documents, let's start out with one thing I find really heartening, which is that there are a whole bunch of people who were there for sort of the formative period for Facebook's integrity work, which, and the integrity work is industry leading. 
And that period is 2017 to 2020. It like really didn't exist before then in any meaningful way. The platform was just being optimized for engagement with very few thoughts to other things. And those people are now out talking um, and some of them quite recently. So Sophie Zhang's a really interesting person, Katie Harboth, um, the Integrity Institute people that just launched. God, there are so many, Alex Stamos, uh, Francis Haugen, obviously on, on some of this stuff. And then Samid Jakrabarti, the former head of Civic. Like there are these people, you know, and you can pick and choose who you like and all of that, but these folks know what they're talking about. I think some of the things that, that I've seen, um, you know, if you wanted to hear from me as opposed to those folks who actually worked on this, one is just simplicity. Um, the complexity of Facebook is unmanageable. Yes, they might have far more staff than Twitter ever does on these things, but you know what? Twitter is a much simpler product and that is a real asset. Makes the life of people who go from Facebook to Twitter um, to do safety work a lot easier. Second thing is friction. Just the platform is um, too damn fast to be well-regulated, right? Like I think something that stuck out is that, um, I don't think this has been reported yet, but half of the views of fact-checked articles basically were happening before anyone ever looked at them, right? Because Facebook wasn't slowing them down while they were waiting for human review. So, you know, when we're thinking about the stop the steal stuff that went crazy the day after the election, it's not that all those things weren't fact-checked. It's just they all got out of control before they were. And that's a, that's a system design choice, right? And then beyond that, uh, there are a ton of different things in terms of, first of all, how much voice gets given to hyperactive users. That one is a huge one. Um, and then also just the question of what behavior should get you distribution on the platform. Um, I think really interesting work on conversational motifs, which is like the idea that maybe if you as a person go around Facebook starting flame wars all the time, maybe you don't need heavy distribution. That's all. Like, like basically, maybe if, if you're the person at the party that no one wants to talk to, maybe you don't need to be able to just like go to the next party and the next party and the next party and just like monopolize the thing until everyone is just like holding their heads groaning. And that is not the way Facebook has built itself. Um, in fact, those are the company's best users, quite literally, in terms of usage statistics. Those are the ones that when you're measuring based on engagement, always show up. And so I think there's like a lot of de-optimization work that needs to be considered, perhaps. You know, you brought up on some of the stop steal movement, for instance, and uh, we just saw some reporting from Mother Jones, which does not appear to be based on Facebook pages. No, it's not. Is, it was super great. <laughs> uh, which is... Um, kind of refreshing in a way, but about the entry points to membership in the Oath Keepers, which uh, puts Facebook up at the, the very top. Um, are there other elements of that conundrum of the kind of radicalization and extremism piece that are top of mind for you? Yeah. I mean, and on that very quickly, I think Andy Stone did reasonably point out that some of that recruitment occurred before Facebook was cracking down on this stuff on the platform on Oath Keepers. So there's, there's some truth there. Absolutely. And also I think it's just worth thinking about scale, right? Like Infowars was a significant portion of Facebook and the scale in question here is so much different. Like, so there are, in other words, like far worse conduits, but Facebook being as big as it is obviously comes with responsibilities. 
there is no question Facebook understands it's there, right? I think the, you know, we reported this stuff and then it's been reported like six times since um, the Carol's journey to QAnon or the, an Indian user's descent into something radicalization. Like Facebook and literally anyone can test this. You set up a dummy account, you see what Facebook steers it toward in terms of recommendations. It gets ugly immediately. They, they understand this is a, just an inherent feature of their system, and they are not clear that it's even a thing they have a problem with. I mean, I think a lot of people are clear on it, but overall, you know, like March of 2020, their big presentation to executives, they're talking about the perverse incentives that exist in terms of what publisher content is getting recommended and pushed out by their system and saying like, yeah, we're not sure it's a problem, right? And it's like, I don't know. I think if you're building perverse incentives, that's kind of axiomatically a problem. It's, uh, I think, a thing that they know is real, um, and they simply like virality too much to give it up. So one of the things that has been most surprising about the company's response has been its statements on January 6th. You've had Nick Clegg and Monica Bickert and these others throwing out this straw man and then taking it down that you know it's ridiculous to argue that the company was primarily responsible for January 6th. What do you make of that strategy around this particular incident? I mean, obviously, look, it's it's correct. They weren't primarily responsible for this, but it's also irrelevant. I think something that Facebook has had going for it in kind of public discussions of this is that this technology is really new. We don't understand it. Like, There's still this implication to say things like Facebook was founded to connect people and likes are the heart of the platform. Neither one of those things is true, right? Like Facebook was founded as a business, a very successful business. It, there's kind of this mythology that came around. And I think we're all still sort of like tied to some pretty outdated ideas of how it all works and that don't really take into account the recommendation systems and the social dynamics that Facebook engineers. And so I think it's been very easy for them to sort of make this case of like, well, you know, who's to say, right? And aren't we all just getting out of hand? And isn't this just another moral panic about technology? And, you know, what I'm really hoping is some of these documents just sort of like make that stuff seem like a really lame and unattractive answer from them in the future. Where is the oversight board in all of this? So the first story we did on this stuff was on CrossCheck, which is the system of protections for VIP, quote unquote, users. That was like very, very, very heavily in the oversight board's territory because Facebook had actually been asked by the oversight board about the CrossCheck program and had basically told the oversight board that there was no data uh, or there were no data for this program and that there was no special treatment and that it was a small number of users. Well, yeah. It's like millions. They were letting through like 16 billion bad views a year um, of violating material. They were like obviously special treatment. And this was just this like massive program that they understood to just be riddled with problems for years and completely indefensible. And they just like didn't tell the oversight board that. And so, you know, the board responded by like, saying that they were upset and thanking the Wall Street Journal for the reporting. But I think it, it really is a thing that where they go from here is a good question because being the oversight board implies having the ability to conduct oversight and having transparency into the company because they've got two jobs. One of them is reviewing individual posts on a case-by-case basis and opining on you know, what the right moderation call should have been on a system that moderates you know, hundreds of millions of pieces of content a day. 
And then the other one is advice and oversight. And if they can't conduct the second one and their opinions aren't really valued, then that kind of doesn't leave them much of a substantive role, even as they are purporting to be providing oversight, right? So I don't know how that all works out. You know, they seem like they're smart people. Uh, Yeah, I guess I've been surprised there wasn't a bit more of a fight over that stuff. I want to just ask you about what's coming next. I understand that we've got weeks more of this in terms of the rest of the journalists who now have access to the documents continuing to get new tranches. Um, are you continuing to get new tranches uh, or are you in a no, separate no, no. category? We've, we've had, no, we've had this stuff for, for quite a while now. Um, so there are, there are no new tranches. Um, Frances, uh, when she left Facebook, that was the, uh, that was the end of, of her access that said, we are hearing from other people, so there should be more stuff. Um, and uh, you know, there are still things that are getting mined from the documents that you know either we didn't see or that we decided was really interesting. But dear God, we've already written thirty-five thousand words, so um, you know, there's just kind of limits to how much we can put out. I think the stuff that's getting put out by Gizmodo is great. It's just like very clean and simple. Like here are the documents. Here's what we think are most interesting, rather than like let's pull together a full narrative. So I'm like, I think that's pretty exciting. I'm really hoping this stuff makes it to academics. And then I would love to have kind of more discussions from academics about this stuff too. Um, so hopefully we don't all get distracted by whatever the hell Facebook is named as of this afternoon um, or things like that. Um, it seems to me like there are a lot of lessons here, not just for Facebook, but for other platforms too. Jeff, when do you think these documents will be fully available to the public or at least available to academic researchers? Hopefully soon. I mean, I think, look, not everything in them needs to be out there. In fact, some of it really shouldn't be. I've heard some people say that like, this isn't the NSA stuff. I'm like, actually, yeah, some of it feels very life or death. So, you know, regardless of your feeling on the NSA, like there's definitely stuff in here that really, really should not just be dumped. Um, And then there's also the privacy of employees. I, I think with us, you know, it. I would have. We, we put out. I think just about a half dozen um, full decks, and obviously excerpted other things to show from documents. But I think it's kind of difficult to. It took a lot of work to do those. Like there were a lot of, like kind of a pretty crazy number of hours of labor that went into just even making those six documents available. And I think um, it's you know really important that people get access to this stuff. So I think it's great that kind of some more digital native publications are putting some of this stuff out. Um, They they seem to be, I think, approaching in the right mindset. And I'm really hoping that this stuff does make it kind of to a permanent home at some point um, where everybody can look at it. Because I I don't think, you know, like, yes, we did the work to kind of bring this stuff out. We're very proud of that. You know, like obviously exclusive journalism is the thing you get to do when, you know, you put in that work um, and it's how that whole operation kind of justifies itself. But like at some point, I think this stuff really does just need to be studied broadly, Um, not because it contains all the answers, but just because it contains all the right questions. And we're going to need Facebook probably to provide some of the underlying data um, for people to really understand the implications of it. Yeah. I mean, I think Look, if one thing were to come out of this, I think I said earlier on, like, you know, maybe we can all just take some time and think this stuff through. I think the one thing that should be very clear is like the more data that can be brought out of Facebook through non smuggling it out in a backpack means the better, right? Like 
this stuff is, I think if there's anything that these documents conclusively show, it is that these issues are far too important for Facebook alone to be doing them. And Facebook says it wants to be regulated, but the truth is you can't re- regulate Facebook well if you don't know what the hell is even going on inside. Well, Jeff, I uh, wish you uh, health as you continue to put in these long hours on this project. Thanks, man. Next up is Dia Kiali. In their role at Mnemonic, Dia focuses on the impact of policy decisions made by lawmakers and technology companies about content moderation. Previously, Dia served as program manager for tech and advocacy at Witness, and they got their start in digital rights as an activist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Dia is co-chair for the advisory network to the Christchurch Call, a member of the Legal Frameworks and Content Sharing Algorithms, Processes, and Positive Interventions Working Groups of the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, and is on the advisory board for OnlineCensorship.org. Dia has a JD from the University of California Hastings College of the Law. Here's Dia. My name is Dia Kayali, and I'm Associate Director of Advocacy at Mnemonic, also known as Syrian Archive. Can you just give the listener a little detail on what it is you do there? Uh, Sure. So Mnemonic is a parent organization for Syrian Archive, Yemeni Archive, and Sudanese Archive. As you may guess, we are focused on documentation of human rights abuses, and that unfortunately necessarily entails a lot of work on content moderation policy, because uh, particularly in the last four or five years, we've seen that these policies are leading to massive deletion of human rights content. You have been following Facebook and uh, the Facebook Oversight Board very closely uh, for for some time. And in fact, with Jillian York, uh, wrote a piece for um, Tech Policy Press not too long ago uh, about the Oversight Board and its function. And I I think it's fair to say that it was kind of a, you know, a sort of mixed review. You were on one hand sort of complimentary about the values and the approach that the board seems to be taking um, and the extent to which those values are congruent with uh, things that you have observed and that you have advocated yourself, but then also uh, some concerns as well. You know, as you mentioned, I have been following the oversight board since uh, it was first conceived and throughout all of the sort of civil society consultations that Facebook did before forming it. And some of my original concerns still stand in terms of, you know, how can you have a board that is really representative of the entire user base on Facebook? How much independence does the board really have? And what is the real impact of these decisions? And certainly we've seen some of that play out. And I will say there's this underlying question about the board's legitimacy, which is still very much a question mark. So I guess one of the one of the things that that I think has really stood out is who is on the board. That's one area of concern still for me. The board has the possibility to grow, um, but currently, and and the charter says that it's likely to be forty members. Uh, currently, it is still twenty. I believe maybe they added one more person. It might be twenty one, but it is largely lawyers, and it is still predominantly. You know, I know they've certainly made efforts to make it global, but it definitely still has a preponderance of U.S. and EU-based people. And, you know, they have definitely picked up some fantastic cases, 
and they've made good decisions. Uh, but I wonder how much, even in the case selection process, who is on the board impacts which cases they decide to take on. There's no question that it's going to impact the decisions. Although again, um, one thing that has stood out to me is how much they are referring to specific human rights principles. And they are very much, well, I, I think the, the uh, attorney heaviness of the board uh, deserves some pushback. I also do see how they're very much trying to make the decisions legalistic, which can be problematic, but also means you can refer back, you can understand how they made the decisions uh, and they are trying to push Facebook to be more like them in the sense that they want Facebook to show their work. They want people to understand um, what it is Facebook is doing, why they're doing it, why does a piece of content get taken down, you know, where do algorithms play into this. Really, they're asking for a lot of things. And, and as I mentioned in my piece for Tech Policy Press, they're, they're asking for a lot of things that civil society has been asking for for a very long time. So, for example, a lot of their recommendations really adhere to the Santa Clara principles, which is a set of principles for content moderation that are focused on transparency. Um, so their recommendations, you know, basically mirror a lot of those principles. And that's great to see. However, obviously, Facebook is in the middle of a PR crisis. And so, so much of what the company does is about PR, that a lot of those initial critiques of the oversight board as being, to a certain extent, a PR exercise well, I don't think that they're entirely fair or warranted. I think there's really good people on the board trying to make Facebook a better place. There's also no question that Facebook wouldn't, wouldn't voluntarily be providing the board with information or the funding, the initial funding that it provided uh, if, they, if Facebook didn't think that it was going to be good PR for them. I don't know if they've been disappointed. And I, the, the leaks that we're seeing are old. I would love to see internal discussions now about the board and how they feel about the board and the decisions the board is making. You have pointed out to me one particular element of the recent transparency report, which is really the headline that came out around it, this idea that, that Facebook had not been forthcoming with the board, in particular around cross-check, and the extent to which that kind of mirrors on some level the behavior of the company with regard to some of the Haugen leaks and leaks from other whistleblowers as well, such as Sophie Zhang. What do you make of that? Why does that sort of present such a kind of fundamental problem? Yeah, I think this is absolutely at the heart of the board's legitimacy, even no matter how well-intentioned any member of the board is, if they're not getting accurate information, they can't make accurate recommendations. And um, so, as you mentioned, they, they actually noted in their report that in order to function, they rely on Facebook to give them information that is, quote, accurate, comprehensive, and paints a full picture. So it was good to see them start to, and I think it, I think it moved a little bit slowly. Their first reaction to the revelations about cross-check was, hey, we're frustrated. And then they pushed back more. I know that they... Um, they met with Francis or they will be meeting with Francis. I, I'm not sure if that meeting already happened. And the, and the headline for, for the article where they, where they issued the transparency report, they said, the board demands more transparency from Facebook. I, I think it's fantastic that there are people whistleblowing, um, but knowing that Facebook is not gonna be transparent to the oversight board, we cannot re rely on whistleblowers to give them the information that they need. Um, so I think it really calls into question how the board functions. And frankly, and I have said this before on social media, I think the board really needs to consider what leverage it has to demand anything from Facebook. 
Um, we know that the press is often an ally in this um, and that getting bad PR is important to Facebook. But considering the PR storm that they're in right now, um, it's going to require more than that. So, you know, unfortunately, I think it's possible that the board's best leverage may be threatening to disband in a set amount of time if they don't start seeing visible changes from Facebook. I hope that they are willing to do that if necessary, and also that they are able to come up with a very specific set of things, set of um, requirements that would need to be fulfilled in order for them to continue functioning. You're hoping for more diversity on the board in other ways as well. Absolutely. I, uh, I think it is really unfortunate. There are <clears throat> any number of uh, gaps in the membership of the board. Um, as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's less than the maximum of 40, and there is just no way that it can represent everyone. However, considering the kind of content that the board is reviewing, I think they need to be really strategic about who they are taking on. And I think it's deeply problematic that the board does not have a single transgender member. They noted in their report that around two thirds of the appeals they were taking were around hate speech or bullying and harassment. And I think we're all quite aware that trans people are a particularly popular target for this kind of content, especially right now. I mean, even in the last few weeks, there have been some really horrific articles in the UK press um, that are targeting trans women in particular. Obviously there's been the whole conversation about the Netflix special but also the numbers um, show that this is really playing out in the real world, that hate crimes against LGBTQ people in general, but in particular trans people, are skyrocketing. And if at the heart of what we're worried about is how Facebook is impacting the real world and the offline consequences of these content moderation decisions that they're making, they need to have a transgender person on the board who can speak to these issues with some amount of experience. I want to ask you just a couple of questions around Facebook itself, um, and I might start there. Actually, I mean, one of the things that's uh, uh, you know been discussed um, in some quarters has been the question about whether the company's willingness to turn a blind eye to so many of the harms that have been described in these leaks is, on some level, partly a diversity issue. The fact that it's senior ranks are overwhelmingly white and that many of these harms, of course, are occurring uh, in other parts of the world to people speaking other languages, to people um, with a different color skin. It, it's certainly an issue, but I think it really matters how we're talking about diversity. Uh, in one of the leaks, and to be honest with you, I, I can't tell you which one because I've reviewed a lot of internal Facebook documents <laughs> over the last week. Um, but in one of the leaks, they were talking about how they, oh, it was when they were trying to figure out how to address PR crisis. And they were talking about how they needed to hire more people of color. You know, that's, it's great if you want to hire more people of color, but look at the leadership. I think that is, is far more important than just baseline numbers of Facebook has X percentage of uh, Black folks in these positions. They have you know, X percentage of Arabic speakers or Muslims, all of those things are important. But I think one of the really important key takeaways from the leaks is that there are definitely people inside of Facebook who are trying to address these issues. As we learned from the leaks, the buck stops with Mark, right? And Mark is a cis white guy uh, with a lot of money and all sorts of other perspectives that he's lacking in. So absolutely, I think that it has more to do really with the leadership than just the pure numbers of who's working at the company. 
you've described this ethical conundrum fairly well, which is that you've got Mark Zuckerberg, CEO, top of the company, in some ways, you know, unaccountable. And that creates a conundrum for the oversight board on some level, but it also creates a conundrum for every employee at Facebook, no matter what good they do or what great suggestion they might bring, that at the end of the day, it could be dismissed by, by this unimpeachable CEO. Given what we know, given what these leaks have exposed, does that make it very difficult to ethically do business inside Facebook? You know, this, it's a great question, and I think there's been a lot of tendency from commentators, myself included in the past, frankly, to be very uh, black or white about these issues. And it's not quite that simple. I, I have no doubt that there are people inside of Facebook who have done, who have probably saved lives, really. I mean, um, you know, if you want to take it down to the basis level, there are, there are probably engineers who pushed for things that um, made a very, very real impact in people's lives. It, there's, there's a saying that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. There's not really any ethical engagement with Facebook in certain ways as well, um, based on what we know about their, their business practices, their structure, their lack of accountability. I think that everybody needs to have a very realistic assessment, whether you're somebody who works at Facebook or frankly, whether you're an NGO who is engaging with them and going to their stakeholder engagement meetings or paying attention to the oversight board. I mean, there are people who have critiqued um, even uh, journalists or, or civil society that, that want to talk about the oversight board um, saying, oh, you know, don't play into Facebook's PR game. Um, it, it's, it's, there's, it's really a lot of harm reduction in this space. And so, yeah, I don't think that there's, uh, I don't think that there's a simple answer to that. There's that point of view about the oversight board, this idea of it as fig leaf. There's also this kind of point of view that says, you know, let's wait and see this, this, as you say, the, the kind of legalistic precedent that it's setting may be useful um, and that we may be able to refer to this experiment in the future somehow as we kind of sort through this massively complex problem of how to moderate speech on the Internet. Where do you net out right now? You know, I, I think that we are all just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks at this point. I, I still I still want to say I think that there is more um, there's more untapped potential, you know, that there are so many critiques of how the how the board was put together and how it's functioning that I think we could still see some improvements in that area and potentially have a more functioning system. That being said, I. I agree with people who argue that we need to get at the business model of these companies as well. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily as simple as, oh, you know, just break Facebook up. Uh, but how many products does Facebook have now? Um, you know, uh, there are other companies as well. Obviously, Google comes to mind. How many different products is Google providing? Um, and YouTube ends up being kind of a, a, not an afterthought, but it's hard to get at it when it's such a huge company especially with Facebook talking about its shift to the metaverse, which means, and I think people really need to keep this in mind, content moderation decisions are going to have an impact on people's ability to engage in a space that I, I think most of us are expecting is going to become really, you know, again, part of the public square. So there needs to be some regulation, uh, obviously transparency and privacy regulation, and there needs to be a real solid look at the company's business model. Dia, thank you so much. Welcome.
That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.